The rest of us this morning are going to be talking about the goodness of the resurrection. Uh, the goodness of the resurrection. Uh, what does a preacher preach on on Resurrection Sunday? Obviously the resurrection, but there's so many passages and there's options. And what about this passage? What about that passage? And I think this might be my, my 20th year as a preacher. And so I've had 20 Easter's. And uh, now what do I do this Easter? Which, which one should I do? Which passage? What angle? And I was just resting in the goodness of resurrection and thought the resurrection is so good for so many different reasons. And uh, let's be simple. Let's be potent and focus on the simple reality that the resurrection is good. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And we'll look at six different Bible texts at least. And we'll have six reasons why the resurrection is good. And so what I hope happens today is I hope you marvel at the goodness of God and resurrection, that it causes you joy, that it gives you um, motivation to respond to God and his goodness, because the resurrection is good and it has good implications for us. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 2. That'll be our first passage that we're going to look at as we consider the goodness of Resurrection, not just Jesus' resurrection, resurrection in general, but because of Jesus' resurrection, resurrection is good. If you are new to the Bible, um, don't, don't freak out from all these Bible passages, okay? If you want to find Acts, that'll be great. You can just stay there if you'd like, Acts chapter 2. You can find a table of contents in the Bible that we gave you or maybe the Bible you brought with you, but you can look at Acts. We'll be there several times. Um, but you can just listen or try to follow along. The rest of you, you better warm up your nimble fingers because we're going to be in multiple passages as we want to be marveling at, at God's goodness and resurrection. Reason number one, the resurrection is good, um, is because it shows or showcases an eternal decree. I realize that's a mouthful, but we're talking about something really, really big and important and really, really good. So I think it's worth calling it it showcases an eternal decree. Here's what I mean by that. And I realize it's still kind of early. It's not noon yet. And maybe it's a little early for saying things like eternal decree. But when you're talking about Jesus being raised from the dead, it's so big and so important. It's worth using important phrases like that. Eternal decree. Here's what I mean. We're going to see it in Acts chapter 2. That God, before time began, before time as we know it, we don't really have a point of reference for that, other than God himself. But as Ephesians 1 describes, we have God before the foundation of the world. God who is one eternally. God who eternally exists in three persons. Can't figure that out. But you have the Father who is God, the Son who is God, the Spirit who is God. In eternity past, we might say, in light of Ephesians 1, the triune God counsels together. And the Father is there, and the Son is there, and the Spirit is there. And God plans what will happen in this world. And central to that plan is redemption. That God will create. That there will be rebellion. That there will be redemption, rescuing from the just penalty for rebellion. And central to all of the plan would be the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son, 
The Father is going to send the Son. The Father chooses in light of Ephesians 1. He, he elects, He predestines, and He sends the Son to provide reconciliation, the reconciling work of the Son. And then the Spirit of God applies it to our lives and He opens our eyes and He gives us new hearts. And, and the eternal God has an eternal decree. Decree meaning, meaning purpose, plan. It's sure because we're talking about God. And I realize this is a little bit heady. Deep into the pool stuff. But we're being impressed today with Jesus. His resurrection from the dead is key to having that eternal decree, that divine purpose become real. And so today I want you to marvel at the resurrection of Jesus, perhaps like never before, because how about this? It's bigger than you, and it's bigger than me. It's bigger than an event that happened in Palestine a couple thousand years ago. It reaches back into that that divine council chamber where the infinite, amazing, all-knowing, triune God planned and purposed to do a great work in the sun. We haven't even gotten to the text yet. In Ephesians chapter, excuse me, Ephesians 1 talks about that. Acts chapter 2 links it to resurrection. Let's go ahead and see. This is Peter preaching. This is after Jesus has been raised. Um, this is after Jesus' work is complete. And Peter's going to preach about this great eternal decree becoming reality. Chapter 2, verse 23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. Some of your, your translations put it a little bit differently, and that's really where I, got, where I got this idea of eternal decree in light of Ephesians 1. The definite plan, the definite purpose, the definite decree. And foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But then notice what else is a part of this eternal decree, this, this definite plan, this, this predetermined plan. Notice it says in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I love that. It's not possible. It can't be stopped. Jesus is going to die no matter what. That can't be stopped. Peter wants to stop it and Jesus says, get behind me. Satan, his crucifixion can't be stopped. He's going to lay his life down for us. That can't be stopped because it's part of the eternal decree. But not only can his crucifixion not be stopped, what? His resurrection can't be stopped. This, this has to happen as sure as God is all-powerful, as sure as God is all-knowing, as sure as God came up with a plan. This should cause us to kind of stagger. This is amazing. This is marvelous. Peter's preaching about it. And then it says, verse 25, for David says concerning him, this is the patriarch David way back in the Old Testament, way before it happened. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or to the grave is the idea, to death, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I must say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. You can just put your finger there for a second at the end of 29. Peter is is quoting 
David, who they all looked up to, he's speaking to a Jewish audience and he's saying, let me quote David to you about resurrection and you won't go, uh, you won't um, undergo, I want to say decree, decay. And then he's going, uh, last time I checked, you can go visit his grave. It's got to be a greater David. It has to be something bigger than just this David. It's talking about none other than the divine son. Then let's keep going. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn by an oath, that is certainly related to things like decrees. God had sworn with an oath, this covenant kind of terminology, because that's what an oath is, to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. 31 is a big deal. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades or the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. That's who David was talking about. 32 says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord. How about that? David says, the Lord said to my Lord. Sit at my right hand. It's clearly not about David, because he says, the Lord said to my Lord, until I make your enemies your footstool till you reign over them. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. Makes me think of decree. For certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And the certainty is tied even to resurrection. My friends, the resurrection of Jesus is more than a miracle. Not less than a miracle, but it's more than a miracle. Jesus did all kinds of miracles when he was here on earth. The resurrection of Jesus is more than a miracle. And why would I say that? I would say that because it is the fulfillment, the major component, a must, compo- must be component of God's eternal purpose, his purposeful plan, his eternal decree. So when you think about the resurrection of Jesus, oh, I think you probably were already thinking pretty good things about it or you wouldn't have come this morning. It's probably bigger than you even realized. We forget how big it is. This is what God designed to do before in the beginning God created in light of Ephesians 1. So let's talk about the goodness of the resurrection. It's exciting to know that God includes us. He's a personal God. It's exciting to know things like Romans 8 where he says, those whom he says all these great things. So he's personal. It has to do with individuals like you and like me. And that's encouraging. I'm so glad God is a personal God. But, but complimenting that, I'm so glad. I want you to be so glad that it's so much bigger than you. It's so much bigger than me. God's grand drama of redemption is grand, eternally grand, centering on the Son, grand. Gives us joy, should give us joy. These are the the kinds of things that Peter says and elsewhere that angels, heavenly holy beings, 
long to gaze at. It baffles angelic minds that the Father sent the Son for rebels like us. And then the Spirit is sent to open our spiritually blind eyes and apply the work of redemption. It's great stuff. It's great stuff. Well, that right there was better than any sermon I've ever preached on Easter, ever. And so, in a sense, we could just be done. And some of you might say, well, good. That was the best sermon he ever preached because it was short. We got five more. We're ordering in. (laughs) Not really. Another reason why the resurrection is good. Number two, it confirms Jesus. It confirms Jesus. Why don't you turn to Luke chapter 9. And then I'm going to reference John chapter 2. But for the sake of time, I'll just send you to Luke 9. So if you're in Acts, um, you can just turn back. Matthew, Mark, Luke. I can't do it backward. Um, Go backward to John, um, then Mark, then Luke. Is that right? No, I got him confused. I never read a book till I went to college, so um, I can't keep it all straight. If you go to Luke's account, and actually Luke is written by Dr. Luke, and so is the book of Acts, so they should be next to each other. What was someone thinking? I don't know. Um, but Luke chapter 9, verse 22, we'll just look at that one verse. Uh, where Jesus is confirmed when he's raised from the dead. It says in verse 22, saying, this is Jesus speaking, Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man, he's speaking about himself, must, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And this isn't the only place he says things like this. But, But let's just make sure we understand and know that Jesus put it all on the line time and time again. What must happen is, I must be crucified, betrayed and crucified, and I must be raised from the dead. If, if it doesn't happen, I have how much credibility? I have zero credibility. It must happen, must happen, must happen. John chapter 2, remember where Jesus cleanses the temple? It seems that Jesus does it on a couple occasions. But he cleanses the temple. They're, they're, they're making uh, the temple, which he calls his father's house, a den of thieves and robbers because they're charging too much money. If you want to have a sacrifice, you have to buy your sacrifice there. And it's a racket because people travel from all over the place. And they come and they have to buy the animals at these crazy rates. And Jesus goes, and what does he do? He turns the tables over and he drives them out with a whip. He's so upset. And then he says these familiar words. And by the way, they they say to him, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for these things? What right do you have to do this? In in a sense, they're not disagreeing with him. Okay, the place is a mess. You've made your point. There is corruption here, but what right do you have? And Jesus could have said, well, I'm a prophet. And maybe they would have accepted that. I mean, it's kind of a Jeremiah kind of thing to do. That would be what Jeremiah would do. He, he kind of was, you know, temperamental. Maybe the Jews would have, would have signed off on it. Jeremiah gets pretty hacked off sometimes because of corruption and perversion. Maybe that would be like Isaiah. Or maybe Ezekiel. He's out there sometimes. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. 
The Jews then said in verse 20, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And, and, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And by the way, the temple is where you would go to meet God. The temple is where you'd go to worship. The temple is where you would go to make sacrifices. And he's saying, destroy this temple. Because he's going to become the temple. He's going to become the place and means of atonement. He's going to become the object of worship. And so that's pretty amazing to see. And then, when therefore he was raised from the dead, it says his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Oh, that's what he meant. Earlier we read from Mark chapter 16 for scripture reading, just as he told you, the angel said. So all over the place, all over the place, Jesus has been saying before crucifixion, I've got to be raised from the dead. I will be raised from the dead. No matter what, absolutely I'm going to be raised from the dead. Based upon Old Testament authority, I have to be raised from the dead. And so when he's raised from the dead, we say, this is good. This is good because it confirms him. This is the most obvious reason of all. Let's just stop for a moment, though, and think if uh, he wouldn't have been raised. Do you think people might have still followed him? Some would have. In fact, there were some Corinthians that were concluding that maybe resurrection wasn't real. Maybe resurrection's in your heart. It's not bodily, physical. And they're still calling themselves Christians. And Paul says, at least you believe it in your heart and are sincere. He doesn't say that. He says, if Christ hasn't been raised, then, then we of all people on planet Earth are most to be pitied. We're the biggest idiots on the whole planet. Everything hinges on whether or not he really was raised from the dead because he said he would be. And he has to be. But isn't it interesting there would have been people, there have been people that have thought maybe it's not true and they still are willing to say they're Christians. I want to remind you today that if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then what are we thinking? Why are we here? We should be at an Eshtar party with Eshtar eggs, the goddess of fertility. Bunnies, springtime, fertility, happy Eshtar. We shouldn't be at a Christian worship service celebrating the resurrection of Jesus if it didn't really happen. He said it would happen. It happens. Now, now and then, you, uh, like me, have opportunity to talk to people from different religions. I hope you talk to people from different religions. I love those opportunities. Not always, but sometimes, I like to ask a question along these lines. If these historic events that your sacred writings record are absolutely proven to be a fabrication, are you still going to be a member of XYZ religion? If it shows to be true, absolutely, scientifically, archaeologically, whatever it might be, that this did not happen, what would that do to your faith? Interestingly enough, many times they would say, I would still be a 
committed follower of this religion? It's not always how it ends, but I like asking that question. I'm here to remind you that Christianity stands or falls on this one. Read 1 Corinthians 15. Just know that Jesus said it was going to happen. Why would we trust him for anything else if he said it was going to happen and it didn't happen? We're celebrating the goodness of resurrection because it confirms the truthfulness of Jesus. Let's move on now to another. Number three, we see the goodness in resurrection because it secures a couple more big words, but it's a big day. It secures cosmic restoration. It secures cosmic, think about the cosmos, not just the world. It secures, it absolutizes, it makes sure cosmic restoration. The world you're living in is broken. The life you're living, as good as you all look today, is broken. The relationships you're in, as good as they might be or not, they're broken. We live broken lives in a broken world. It's all around us. As the bumper sticker says, life sucks and then you die. Happy Easter. <laughs> but we're, we're totally in denial unless, unless we, we affirm that. Disaster zone all around us. The great news is the resurrection is so good because it absolutely secured coming restoration. The world is going to be fixed. If you go to Colossians 1, you'll see it. Colossians 1, you'll see it. If you were in the book of Acts, I'm not sure where you are right about now. Um, where are you? Are you with me? <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, or just listen. But it's in Colossians 1 that Christ, and not just His resurrection, in His whole work, but it includes His resurrection, has guaranteed fixing the world. As you're still trying to find Colossians, let me, let me put it in perspective for you another way. One day, the Father's going to be able to say like He said at creation, it is good. He's not saying that right now. I'm not saying that right now, neither are you. But one day, because of what Christ has already done, he will come again and He will execute, if you will. He will put, put in motion what He's already secured by His work, including resurrection. And the Father will one day be able to say again, it is good because it's going to be good. In fact, He probably will say, as He said in the early chapters of Genesis, it is what? It is very good. And I'm not going to put words in God's mouth. But he might even, because of the great work of his son that hadn't been done before, he might even want to say, it is very, very good. <laughs> because it will all be restored. You can read about it at the end of the book of Revelation. But for now, let's just see it in Colossians. Colossians 1, verse 15. He is, this is talking about Jesus and his preeminence and his supremacy. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That is to say, the number one preeminent one in all that is. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things, notice the emphasis, were created through Him and 
before him and he is before all things emphasized and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that's resurrection talk, firstborn from the dead, resurrection talk, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And look at verse 20, and through him, the one who was the firstborn from the dead, the one who's been raised from the dead, to reconcile to himself, that is restore to himself, reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Ta-da! Yes! Most excellent goodness. Restoration is sure. Marvel at Jesus not being on the cross, not being in the grave, being raised from the dead, the firstborn. And remember, that's evidence evidence that the broken world you live in won't stay broken. I can put a smile on my face today amidst the brokenness. Tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock. And one day there will be a final talk (laughs) and Christ will return. And we sang about it today. Because of his perfect life, death, and resurrection, it's sure that he will come again and the world will be fixed. It's good. So good. You might be tempted to think, this is a pretty theological sermon. I was kind of looking for practical. I'm totally with you. Can I please remind you and help you see that the theological sermon is the practical sermon? You say, but I'm just having a hard time at home. I'm just having a hard time at work. Yeah. I'm just having a hard time with my health. Yeah. I'm just having a hard time with a certain relationship. I'm just having a hard time at school. I'm just... You need a resurrected Savior ensuring cosmic restoration. It doesn't get any more practical to help you through this day. Your hope is not in yourself or in your circumstances. Your hope is in Him. And you say, how can I actually know He's going to come through on His promises? He was raised from the dead. Come on. It's the stamp of approval. The Father is pleased with the work of the Son. He raised Him from the dead. All of the other promises He made, how can I know that He's actually going to keep His word? Hello, He was raised from the dead. Guaranteed cosmic restoration. That's why we, 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 we emphasize resurrection. That, that's why uh, we're so into it as Christians. That's why we're going to talk about it next week in one way or another. And I'll just let you know the secret in the next week in one way or another. Because it doesn't get more practical than this. Okay, Romans 8, we can talk about that there. We won't. We'll get to it later. Let's move to a fourth reason for the goodness of the resurrection. And that's because it restores freedom. It restores freedom. And we'll look at this from a couple of angles. First hour, we're starting to get tired right about now. So, elbow your spouse if you have one, brothers, sisters, um, uh, whatever it takes, because it's not getting worse. It's not getting better either, but you don't want to miss this. The resurrection of Jesus restores freedom. 
We're going to look at it from two angles. It restores our freedom from condemnation. We're not condemned. We're not, we're not under the sentence of guilty anymore. But it also restores us and, and, brings, and brings freedom from enslavement to sin. Which is true of everyone in this room before you're a Christian. You're enslaved to sin. That's true of all of us. So, if you would, turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13. Paul is preaching, and he is preaching about freedom from from condemnation. We all know what to be. We all know what condemnation means. We all know what it means to have someone condemned. Um, it's when they're found guilty and they're condemned, sentenced. They're sent off to incarceration. We we know how this works. Okay, here here is the reality. Here's what God says about you. He says, you're a lawbreaker, a spiritual lawbreaker. God's given his law and he said, okay, let me just make it real simple for you. Love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love me with all that you are. Treat me like I'm God. I've revealed myself to you and I want you to say, yes, that's the God I believe in. And everything about me will be ultimately for your honor and glory. Just do that. Just do that all the time. And everything's going to be peachy, smooth sailing. As long as you treat God like he's God, everything's fine. And you say, I do. Well, the Bible would say, by you saying I do, you say God is a liar. Because he says, you don't. First John says, if we say we have no sin, no rebellion, no law-breaking, if we say, in other words, I love God, I love Him all the time, I love Him just like He wants to be loved, God says, you're saying, by saying that you do that, you're saying, God, you're a liar. Yikes. Happy Easter. <laughs> but there's no way to make sense of resurrection and how good it is unless you understand your guiltiness. So under the law of God, the, the good law of God, okay, the, the stable law of God, Pat Abendroth is a lawbreaker condemned under God's law. And so are you. So we're smoked. We're dust. Condemnation. The psalmist describes this as we're, we're, we're in the crosshairs of the bow. And let's just make the image good because God is holy and righteous. The holy angels, I'm just going to carry out the picture and the image a little bit should be saying, fingers getting tired, Lord. You deserve a break today. Just get it over with. Get them, God. They deserve it. We'll worship you all the more. You say, that would give me bad dreams. Read Psalm 7. And he would be doing the right thing. Again, happy Easter. You know, just <laughs> go eat a rabbit. <laughs> but here's the thing. The father sends his son to absorb the judgment for us. He raises him from the dead, proving that he's satisfied with his substitutionary, loving, absorbing the judgment. 
And the resurrection, my friends, gives you freedom from condemnation. Right now, I can be happy, I can be thrilled, I can talk to God, I don't have to run and cower, and neither do you, if I'm connected to the Son by trusting in the Son, because He was raised from the dead. Let's go ahead and see it in Acts chapter 13. Hope you're there by now. Acts 13, beginning in 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us who have been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterances of the prophets. How about that? The rulers did not understand What the Bible said, the Bible they taught, the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. They read them every Sunday, and they read the truth about Jesus, therefore, every Sunday, and they didn't understand. Fulfilled them by condemning Him. They fulfilled other prophets by doing that, and you go, wow, this isn't good, this isn't positive. But notice what it says in verse 30. We'll jump down there for the sake of time. The rulers are guilty for what they did. But verse 30, in contrast to the rulers, says, But God raised him from the dead. Then 32, for, for, and, and we bring to you the good news, the gospel news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Then drop down with me, if you would, down to verse 35. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. That's a resurrection prophecy. Verse 36, there's more. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep. He died and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. So there has to be a greater David. There has to be somebody better than him. 37, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, talking about Jesus, don't miss this part, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, 39, and by him, Jesus, everyone who believes is freed, there's our key word, is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The high point is in verse 39. Everyone who's trusting in the Son is freed. Freed from what? Freed from condemnation. Freed from the law that says you have to do these things and live. And the problem is you never will. It just keeps reminding you of your guilt. So the resurrection is this flashing sign and announcement. Hey, no more guilt. Now there's freedom. And for those of you who really want to be technical, notice in your Bible, in that last verse we read in verse 39, You might even have a a marginal little note that puts in the margin something like more literally or literally the word freed is actually the word for justified. Dikaio. And if you read it that way, it helps you understand the freedom even better. And by him, everyone who believes is justified, is freed because of justification, is declared perfectly a law keeper, even though they're not. How about that? From everything from which you could not be declared perfect as a perfect law keeper by the law of Moses, because under the law of Moses, you're a lawbreaker. I realize that's a mouthful, but it's so good. Because of the resurrection, we're freed, and it's a justifying kind of freedom. And remember how good that is. The Bible talks about it a lot. 
To be justified is to be declared perfect, even though you're not. To, to, for God to say, Pat Abendroth has loved me with his heart, soul, mind, and strength all of the time, perfectly. And we all know Pat Abendroth's wife, who's over there, goes, I know that ain't true. God knows it's not true also. But because his son came and obeyed the law perfectly, gave himself up for who? For us to be treated as if he broke the law awfully, as we all have, and then to be raised by his father, confirming, affirming that the work is done complete. How about it, guys? Freed from condemnation. Freed from condemnation. That's so good. You will not, I promise you, you will not hear something better than that. You are guilty. God treats you not just like you're innocent, but like you actually are good in upholding His law. Amen and amen. And it's tied to the full work of Christ. If you will, the final exclamation point being resurrection. Resurrection. Freedom from sin's power as well. It's in Romans 6 and Romans 7. Um, I'm not going to take the time to go through all of that. Just listen, if you would, to Romans chapter 7, verse 4. It says, likewise, my brothers, you have... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ. See, because Christ died, we die with him if we're believing in him, and we die to the law. We're not guilty under the law anymore, so that you may belong to another, to him, who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So good to realize we go from enslavement, every single one of us, Romans 6 and Romans 7, enslavement to sin. We don't even realize it, but we're enslaved to sin. But because we trust in Christ, we're united with Him in His death, and so we die. Well, dead people aren't under obligation anymore. (laughs) They carry us out of the jail. We're free in one sense, in the cemetery. We died. But then Jesus rose again from the dead, and if we're trusting in Him, then we're raised with Him unto newness of life. That's Romans 6. But here, it's talking about how we have, we, have, we have a new allegiance. We have a new Lord. We have a new Master. Who's Jesus? And then how about what it said? You didn't look it up, but you can just listen. In order that we may bear fruit for God. Oh, see, now I can do what I was made to do. You can do what you were made to do. What were you designed to do? God made us in His, in His image. To, to be imitators of Him. To treat Him like He's God, rightfully and truly. And because of our being united with Jesus, including His resurrection, now we are free in a new sense, with a new master, we are free to bear fruit for God. How about we are free to act and do what we were made to do? There's no greater joy than that joy to bring glory and honor to God who made us. Let resurrection remind you of that. You, how about this? You don't have to sin today and dishonor God. I didn't say you won't sin. 
Because we are still works in progress. So we're trusting in Christ and His righteousness, His law-keeping. But the shackles have been broken. You don't have to sin. You don't have to rebel. Why? Because of resurrection. Number five. Number five. Then we'll do six quickly and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Number five, we can see the goodness of resurrection because of its, because it assures justice. Because it assures justice. If you want to look at John chapter 5, you can see this. We could go to Acts 17. We won't go there this morning. As you're turning to John Let me explain what I mean by it. It assures justice. How many of you have ever been wronged? Hello, you know, duh, dumb question. Yeah, everybody in this room has been wronged. And you've wronged. We've all been wronged. Sometimes big time wrong. People steal from us. People vandalize things. People, you know, they assault Some horrible things happen that I won't even mention. Turn on the television and you just go, man. Sometimes we say things without really thinking. We say, what does this world come to? Because we see how bad it is. I was visiting and staying in some people's home last Friday and Saturday in Houston. And I got dropped off uh, at some people's home where I was staying, an elderly couple. And they were watching the news, uh, the the 10 o'clock news or whatever it is there. And I sat down and just wanted to talk to them a little bit. And I could tell it was the routine. And they watched the news. They watched weather every night. And there they are watching. And they would go back and forth. Wonder how many murders tonight, honey? I don't know, dear. Hopefully not as many as last week. I mean, they're just watching. You know what it's like. We don't have the crime rate of Houston, but we have a decent one. Murder, rape, abuse, stealing, lying, perjuring. I mean, we could just go down the list. Think how many wrong things are going on right now in our world. And we're tempted to say, why doesn't somebody do something? Someday, Jesus will. And it's not wishful thinking. I know that he will. How do I know that he will? Because he's been raised from the dead. It's a guarantee that he will do something one day and justice will be done. It doesn't mean we're not thankful for um, civil authorities and for relative justice, but we know that it's only relative justice. I mean, some people can buy some pretty good attorneys and some pretty good judges. But one day, Perfect, absolute justice will be carried out on planet Earth. And it's because of Jesus' resurrection we know that he's going to be the one to do it. This is why Christians for, for, should be responsible citizens, yes. But this is why Christians and believers for, for a long time now have been reminded by God himself, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord in King James. Vengeance will be his. Might not be the God we learned about in Sunday school. But there will be vengeance. 
There will be justice. John chapter 5 is just a glimpse of this. We could look at other texts, but in John chapter 5, verse 25, Jesus says, truly, truly, sincerely, earnestly, assuredly, verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is. Why would he say that? He would say that because he's doing things that will guarantee that coming doing thing. An hour is coming and now is here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. How can that happen if he's still dead? It can't happen. Keep reading. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment. A dead Savior, a dead Jesus can't do this, but he's going to call people to be raised from the dead because he himself has been raised from the dead. And what's he going to do according to verse 7? He's going to execute justice. He's going to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, notice the universality of it, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. How about that? Everybody will be raised from the dead by the one who has been raised from the dead. And you say, I want fair. Fair means just, by the way. Justice will be served by the just one, the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, I'm so glad that this isn't the only verse in the Bible because we'd all be smoked. The good people get everlasting life. I shouldn't do that because everybody over here is going to think they're good. Uh, The good people get everlasting life, you know, and the bad people uh, go to hell in condemnation. The point of this passage is he's the just judge and he's going to give people what they deserve. We're thankful to know that Jesus is our righteousness and we're trusting in him for goodness. But please do find encouragement from this. Our world is a mess. Our world is a mess. Think about it. Troubling. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to bring justice one day. And then finally, let's move on to number six. And finally, we see the goodness of resurrection because it distinguishes, it, it, makes a, it shows a difference between hope and wishful thinking. There's a difference between hope and wishful thinking. Uh, Romans, Romans chapter 8, and we'll end on Romans 8. We could go to 1 Corinthians 15, but let's go to Romans chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. And Romans 8 helps us to see Because Jesus was raised from the dead, when we talk about hope, we're talking about confidence. In a sense, I don't like to use that word uh, because of the baggage that it has in our culture. We say hope, and what we mean is, I hope so, but it'll never happen. I hope I win the lottery. Yeah, I hope I win the lottery, but I've never bought a lottery ticket, so it's going to be kind of hard, you know. I hope I win, even if you buy lottery tickets. I hope I win. You won't, you know, right? Just right after you get struck by lightning, you will. I hope. Well, in a 
Bible text, whether the word hope is used or the idea is used, it doesn't matter. We won't even look at the word, but the idea, we saw it earlier in Acts. It's confidence. It's sureness. It's secure. Why? Because Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. And because he's not in the grave. Because he's been raised from the dead... Physical, bodily resurrection with witnesses really happened in real time and space in history. First century Palestine. Now, all of a sudden, the promises that he has made, all of the promises, we can say, can we trust him or not? Yeah. It's hope. It's trust. It's confidence. If there's no resurrection from the the dead, then you hope in hope. Wishful thinking. I hope so. Contrary to facts. (laughs) For Christians, we say, Because he's been raised from the dead, we don't wish. We hope. We confide in. Absoluteness. Romans 8 is wonderful because it says in verse 11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and that's what he's been arguing in Romans chapter 8, that's true of all Christians, same spirit in you as the one that raised Jesus from the dead. Then keep going. He who raised, Jesus, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also, that, that's not wishful thinking, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is just logic 101. Same spirit in you that raised Jesus from the dead. Guess what? That means you'll be raised from the dead even bodily. We're going to look at a couple of other passages in Romans 8, so don't close your Bible quite yet. This is why 1 Corinthians 15 talks about Jesus being raised as the first fruits. The idea is there are many other fruits. He's the first one. He leads us, as Hebrews would say, as our elder brother. How about Romans 8, 18? Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Context here, it's because of resurrection. There is no glory revealed to you if you're going to die and rot in the grave, if Jesus died and rotted in the grave, but he was a great philosopher. No, think about your life now and all the sufferings. They don't even compare. Even having your best days are still riddled with difficulty. It doesn't even compare with the glory, the glory of resurrection that is to be revealed to us. When you're in, when you're in the in the grocery store today or, or next week and, and you walk by the book aisle and, and you see the guy with a bazillion dollar smile and selling millions and millions of copies, bestseller, and it says, uh, you know, maybe it's the coffee table version by now and there's all different leather bound version. I don't know. Your what? Best life now. Don't you dare buy that book. Don't you dare buy that book unless you're going to take Romans 8 and tear it out. Oh, buy that book if you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Then buy the book. It's not your best life now. Read Romans 8. We just read the verse. This is is your worst life now. Right? If this is your best life now, that means you're going to hell. If you're a Christian, this isn't your best life now. It doesn't, your life now, as good as it might be, doesn't even compare a smidgen. Is, what, a sense what he's getting at in Romans 8, 11. Doesn't even compare at all compared to how great it's gonna be. Why? Because Jesus was raised from the dead, and that guarantees that you're gonna be raised from the dead. 
What are we thinking? You know? I talked to Joel Osteen last Saturday night. If you're in Houston, you got to talk to him, don't you? I wanted to ask him who his dentist was or something. <laughs> Sorry, that was a low blow. When I talked to him, it didn't seem like he was having his best life then. Let's be gracious. If he's a Christian, he's not having his best life now. If you're a Christian, you're not having your best life now either. I know you're not because there's this thing called the resurrection of Jesus. Your best life now, your best day doesn't even compare because the tomb is empty. So helpful, so good. Romans 8.23, finally, that, that, that verse there should be looked at before we're done. 23 says the same thing. And not only the creation. The context is the creation is longing, groaning. The creation is having its worst life now. Okay? And it really is. And not only the creation is groaning for Christ to return and make good on His resurrection promises, but we ourselves, like the creation that is, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Remember, according to context, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that guarantees our resurrection, the first fruits of the Spirit, because we do have the Spirit indwelling us, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. New eyes, new joints, new knees, new ankles, new brains, new hands, new everything. Such good news. Such good news. New everything. I think people who've denied the resurrection, who say they're Christians, must have done so at stages of their life where they were really healthy. <laughs> I don't mind being honest with you saying I have a vested interest. <laughs> it's no reason to believe in the resurrection. Not reason enough but we really need new bodies. Just like we need to be reconciled to God spiritually. Father, thank you for the goodness, the goodness of resurrection. And, and help us to be renewed by the Holy Spirit to appreciate and understand these things more deeply than we have. Uh, help us to be good uh, interpreters and readers of Scripture and even to be good interpreters of our culture around us, even the religious culture, uh, that we would be able to see where Scripture actually aligns and where Scripture actually repels. Our, our proneness is toward gullibility. Our proneness is toward wondering. So help us to remember Jesus Christ and remember His greatness and to remember His power and to remember His great and perfect work and resurrection so that we can make sense of life and we can make sense of eternity and that we can respond to you for your great love in a way that is appropriate and fitting. And thank you now that you've given us this opportunity to eat bread and to drink wine, as Jesus said, until he comes again in remembrance of him. Remind us even now as we eat and drink, not only of what he has done for us, but even remind us of what he's promised to do, that we're doing this until he comes because he's coming to make good on all of these promises. In Jesus' name, amen.